Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we read through the scripture, we need to keep asking ourselves the question, where is Christ? What does this say about Christ? How does this point us to Christ? Because all the scripture is about him. The physical universe, the, the, the book of God's creation holds together in Christ and the word written holds together in Christ. He is the center of history. He is the center of the universe. He is the center of the world. The focus is all on him now and forever. And so there's this line as we read the history of the scripture, the recorded history, there's this line, creation, and then this fall, and then there's the process of redemption, and then finally glorification. And all of it is in Christ and through Christ. And so when we read the scripture, we ought not to read it as some do, as a, an interesting book, an interesting collection of uh, aphorisms and proverbs and some interesting little stories with a, with a moral lesson. That's not what the scripture is. The scripture is a record of the great and mighty deeds of God, creator and redeemer, and glorifier and renewer in and through Christ. And so we can read the scriptures and we can see all these lines holding the soul together in Christ. One of these lines is, is the line that pulls through Genesis 3 verse 15. You remember in Genesis 3.15, the mother promise where, where God says, I will raise up a seed of the woman. And that seed will crush the head of the serpent. There will be a constant conflict as long as time remains between the, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. But there will be victory of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of darkness. And, and that will happen through the line, the holy line of the woman. That's why generations and family lines are so vitally important in the recorded history that we have in Scripture. And you can also pull the line through from Genesis to Revelation, the line of the, the instruction which God gave to Adam and Eve when they were created. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion. So he instructed them to take dominion of the land and to have that land filled with a great and numerous people living to his glory. Land and people. Land and people comes back time and time again in Genesis and throughout the scripture. And we didn't do it, did we? In the fall, instead of filling the earth with God glorifiers and having dominion over the earth to the glory of God, we did the opposite. We brought death, not life. We brought about no holy, life-giving, God-glorifying dominion, but we brought about the groaning of creation and a constant struggle with it. Creation groans under the curse of covenant disobedience. We were expelled from the presence of God. We were expelled from the, the Garden of Eden, which was to be the beginning of what eventually was supposed to become planet-wide, a planet-wide garden city filled with images, living images of God himself. 
And so the Bible recounts the history of how God is fixing the problem we created. He is restoring things. He's bringing things back to the way they are supposed to be. He is bringing us back home into the presence of God and and the holy angels and the multitudes that no man can number. He's working from the time of the fall onwards throughout the entire scripture, throughout the entire history of redemption. And still today, he is working to bring about that moment when the earth is full of God glorifiers, when the entire creation is singing in harmony to praise and worship him who is and who was and who is to come, when all the land will be in the kingdom of God and it will be filled with people worshiping Christ. And so when we read through the scriptures and we see promises of land and promises of descendants and and nations and multiplying, we ought to understand that these promises are little pictures and little foreshadowings that are pointing forward to that great and glorious final consummation of all of the promises of God in Christ. The new heavens and the new earth where finally things are not just fixed, but they're restored and renewed in a way which is incredibly more glorious than it was already in Eden. So when God keeps promising to give land and descendants to Abram, as we read through Genesis, we ought not to see this as just a random promise to some guy walking around the Middle East that he's going to get some square kilometers and he's going to have a big family. We have to understand what's going on with these promises. It is part of the cosmic plan of God throughout history, a plan which includes you and your life and your family. And right here in Genesis, it's just little sparks of what is to come. There's just little moments, altars here and there that Abram builds, little points of contact between heaven and earth. A tiny taste of what we lost and of what God promises to restore. As we read through Genesis, we see centuries of of planning and preparing on the part of God for that one country which eventually will be conquered and where the people of God will fill the land, where God will be known and where God will be worshipped and where God will live in the midst of his people, where he will live in covenant with them. I am your God, you are my people. And then there will be more centuries and centuries of planning and preparing throughout the Old Testament for the coming of the holy seed of the woman, the Christ He will come. He will inaugurate the universal kingdom of God by his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his victorious ascension. Then there will be more centuries and even millennia of spreading that good news throughout the world to all the nations until finally the consummation of Christ's work will come about, the new heavens and the new earth where there is a people from every tribe and language and nation gathered in worship. And so our text, brothers and sisters, needs to be understood in that glorious context of this cosmic plan of God of redemption, which, comes, which spans millennia 
from the beginning of time to the end. Now, next fall, the Lord willing, we will continue with these Genesis sermons. This will be the last one for a while. And today, I really want to focus not on every detail in the text. There are lots of fascinating things in this chapter, but I want to focus especially on what God is doing in this covenant ceremony that we read about. Covenant is important in Genesis. First time we we read the word covenant is in connection with the flood and, and God making promises that he will not destroy the world again by water. But he promises to keep people alive despite the fact that we all deserve death for our sins. It's a gracious and life-giving promise that is signed and sealed by the rainbow, which we still see today. It keeps going. In Genesis chapter 14, you remember that last week we read about, or we, we, we learned about the, the covenant breaking of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities. They, they didn't keep covenant with their Lord kings, and so there were consequences to breaking covenant. There was invasion, there was death, there was slavery. They were dispossessed. And now in chapter 15, we, we, we remember the, the contrast between that and Abram. Abram continues in covenant with God. Abram has faith in the promises. Abram, at the end of chapter 14, received covenant blessing. And that is now reinforced here in our chapter of chapter 15 this morning. Remember what happened last time in chapter 14. Abram had just given up on starting his own kingdom. He could have, but he didn't. He didn't even take the spoil of war, which he had every right to. He said, you know what's enough for me? You know what my portion is? It's God. What is enough for me are the promises of God. And that's all Abram has. He literally gave up a small empire that he could have started, a small kingdom. He says, you know what I have? I have a promise of descendants, although I have none, and it doesn't look like I'll get any. And I have a promise of land, although I have none, and the possibility does not seem too great that I will get land, humanly speaking. And in chapter 15, as we begin reading the chapter, God comes to him and says, Abram, you've made a good choice. Don't worry. Your reward, your portion, will be great. Abram's response is is one of faith, but also asking legitimate questions. Lord, I I believe you, but please help me, because I I don't see it, Lord. I don't understand how. Can you... Can you help me understand? Because, because, Lord, I'm old. And we read Hebrews, right? Hebrews chapter 11. He was as good as dead as far as having children goes. And it looks like, Lord, it looks like the person that's going to inherit all my stuff is, is one of my household servants, one of my feudal vassals is going to take over everything. I don't have descendants. And in verse 4, God is very explicit. He says, no, this man will not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And and the the language used in the Hebrew says literally, from your very own internal organs, from your body, your son will proceed out of your body. There's no mistake here that this will be a son born from Abram. And then he he brings him outside, and he tells him to look to heaven and try and count the stars if he can. 
And as you think of that scene thousands of years ago, almost 4,000 years ago, it's dark, and there's God present with Abram, and Abram's looking up into the night sky in Palestine. And he's looking at the stars, and he's trying to count them, but he can't. You know who this refers to, children. Those stars refer to countless descendants that God will give to Abram. And you are among that number. All those who believe are descendants of Abram, says the scripture. Romans chapter 4, Abram is the father of believers. And so right here in Genesis 15, you get a mention. You're being referred to. You're one of this great number of the descendants of Father Abraham, the father of all believers. And so when Abram's not quite sure if he's going to get one son, because it doesn't seem very realistic, God says, well, you know what? You're going to get so many descendants, you won't be able to count them. So God doubles down on the promise and makes it even more hard to believe. It's amazing, brothers and sisters, verse 6, that he simply holds on to the Lord's word. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. You know what faith is? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 told us, didn't it, when we read it this morning? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is when you say, Lord, this is what you say, and all the world says the opposite. But I will hold on to your word. Lord, this is what you say, and all of my experience agitates against it. All of my feelings say, this is not a good thing for me. But I will hold on to what your word says. Brothers and sisters, this is the undoing of the fall. The fall was, don't take God at his word. Don't believe what God says. And the fall is undone by God through the gift of faith that we just take God at his word. We believe, and that makes everything right between us and God. And when you believe, you share in Abram's blessings, and you share in the righteousness imputed by God to Abram. If you are a child of God, if you're a child of Abram, you are a believer, and we'll talk more about that this afternoon when we look at Lord's Day 7. So God doubles down on the promise of descendants. And then in verse 7, he doubles down on the promise of land. He says, I've brought you out of Ur to give you this land to possess. And once again, Abraham's like, but God, it's hard. You tell me to wait on you. You tell me to live by faith. And I did, and I do, but it, it really seems like I just gave up my only chance to really get ahead and start taking possession. I mean, I had all these troops ready, and the local kings were defeated, and I defeated their, the people that defeated them, and it looked like I could have taken control of this area and really started building something, but I didn't, Lord. You told me to wait on you, and I, and I did, but I don't see how this is going to work out. How am I to know, verse 8, how am I to know that I shall possess it? This is not a question of unbelief. This is a question of faith. Lord, please will you help me to see 
how you will fulfill your word. And so God graciously responds to this question by ordering Abram to prepare a covenant ceremony. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is a relationship of commitment, of love, and of life. When a covenant is broken, then there is pain and death. That's why the scripture compares the marriage covenant to a head and a body. The husband compared to the head, the wife compared to the body, because if you separate the head from the body, it hurts and you die. There's pain and there's death when covenants are broken. But there's life and joy when covenants are kept. The covenant that God has with us is very simple. I am your God, he says, and you are my people. I love you, you love me. And that is life for us. Now, the covenant ceremonies in the ancient world, they're pretty varied. But sometimes they were done in the way that is described in this text. The ancient kings would do stuff like this. They would they would make a, an agreement between each other. They, and the, the more powerful king would say, I will take care of you and you be faithful to me and pay tribute and honor me. If you keep the covenant and I keep the covenant, everybody wins. But if you break the covenant, then there will be death and there will be consequences. And we saw that in Genesis 14, the kind of consequences which would be imposed. And so God is saying to Abram, I will be faithful to you. I will take care of you. Through much affliction, I will hold on to you. Even though that affliction may take centuries, there are centuries of preparation, centuries of suffering, centuries of waiting, but I'm going to hold on to you, and I'm going to keep my promises, and I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to give you the land. You just trust me, and you worship me, and you walk in the way of my word. And so they set up, he, Abram, in obedience to the Lord, sets up this, this ritual, this covenant ceremony with these chopped up animal halves laying in rows opposite each other. And the idea of such a ceremony is that the two that are making the covenant will walk through them together and make this covenant. And, and the chopped up animals are saying, if anybody breaks this covenant, that's what's going to happen to them. They're going to be chopped up. They're going to die. They're going to pay. They're going to be cursed. Did you see the the beauty of what God does here? Verse 17, the sun had gone down, it was dark. And and who walks between the pieces? Not Abram. Only one of them walks through the pieces. And that's a good thing, brothers and sisters, because we have no possible way that we can possibly keep covenant with God in our own strength. And so God walks between the pieces in that symbol of the smoking fire part and the flaming torch. And what is God saying by that? He's saying, I guarantee my covenant. I guarantee my word. God can't break his promises. He simply can't. But we can, and we will. In fact, we can't not sin. We can't not break our promises. We can't not break covenant. So God walks through for him and for us. What is he telling us here? 
What he's saying is this. If you break this covenant relationship, if you fail, if you fall, if you come short, I will take the consequences. I will take the covenant curse so that the covenant blessing can rest on you. And if you read the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, you see what a glorious thing it is that God did this for us because time after time after time we break covenant and break covenant and break covenant again. And we we read through the Old Testament, we see the unbelief of God's people and we think, how can God put up with these people? What does the scripture say? If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God keeps his promises. Hallelujah. Praise God. All the wrath and all the judgment and all the curse that we deserve, God took upon himself. He became true man so that he could suffer and bleed and die the death that we deserve so that he could bear the agonies of the hell that we deserve. And there on the cross, like the animal carcasses that were torn asunder, there on the cross of Golgotha, Christ's soul was torn from his body as he died, not for his sin, but for yours and for mine. And so this covenant ceremony points us to Christ, the one who was cursed so that we might be blessed, the one who offered his body in our stead, the one who poured out his life blood for us. Now today, God sets before us another covenant ceremony. This is the table of covenant fellowship. And God is saying to us once again, I am your God. I mean, look at your forehead. What do you have on your forehead? You have the mark of the the triune name, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have the mark that you belong to him. We're here as God's people gathered around God's word, washed in the waters of baptism, and God calls us to the table. And the table proclaims to us that all is well in our covenant with God. There's no blood in this ceremony. There are no bloodied pieces of animals strewn all over the church because there's no room for blood anymore. All the blood that needed to be shed has been shed. All is well. We are welcome at God's table, at the Father's table in the kingdom of God. And so we can celebrate. We can celebrate the feast. We can celebrate that God keeps his promises. We can celebrate that God's promises come true. You know, we're so much further along that timeline of God's cosmic plan of redemption. The seed of the woman was born, promise kept. The land of the promise, the land of the people of Israel that he claimed for himself, that promise was made and that promise was kept. The Messiah came, promise kept. The Messiah took our curse upon himself, promise kept. And now, brothers and sisters, we're at that stage in redemptive history when it's time for the whole world to be invited in. It's time for God's people to announce to all the tribes and all the languages and all the nations, come 
and bow the knee and confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, that there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Worship the Lamb. We're at that stage of redemptive history when all are called by the gospel to be reconciled to God, to come, to worship, to sit at table with beloved Father. The whole world must hear. The whole world must be brought under the dominion of Christ the King until the knowledge of God's glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea and the blessings of land and people will finally be fully established for all eternity. Now this week we will remember Remembrance Day We will thank God for those who paid the ultimate price for our freedom. And at the table, we remember an even greater price paid and a greater freedom gained. At the table, we celebrate our Savior who paid the ultimate price for our eternal freedom and our eternal life. God promised it to Abram 4,000 years ago. And today we're celebrating still that God Keeps his promises. That was all very beautiful. But brother and sister, sometimes we look around in our lives and we can sympathize with Abram. Because we have the promise of his coming. We have the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. We have the promise of the consummation, the fullness of God's promises in Christ. We have the promise of him wiping away every tear. And we look around at our lives, we look around at our world and sometimes we think, Lord, how? When? Where is the promise of your coming? When will you wipe away the tears? Lord, life hurts and I can't see it. How are you going to do it? And so the Lord calls us to this covenant ceremony. And the Lord says, my child, hold on. Hold on to the promise of Jesus. All my promises are yes and amen in Christ. Just believe. Only believe. Believe though the world be arrayed against you. Though every evidence be marshaled against. Believe my word. Hold on. God keeps his promises. God saves his people. The God who came in Jesus Christ is the God who is coming again to make all things new, to restore all the earth, to restore a redeemed humanity that fills that earth. Land and people. That's his promise. And it's as real as the bread that you chew and the wine that you drink. Promise made, promise kept. Let's worship. Amen.